Strong values and strong opinions. The Mike Broomhead Show, KTAR News, 92.3 FM, and the KTAR News app. Hey, thanks for being here. Appreciate you spending some time with me as always. Um, Speaker McCarthy and um, House Minority Leader Hakeem Jeffries have a notable difference in one of the top House Republicans said that uh, the relationship there is much different than between when Speaker Pelosi, when Nancy Pelosi was Speaker of the House and the Minority Leader um, was uh, Kevin McCarthy. So uh, Pelosi once called McCarthy a moron and McCarthy reportedly joked that it would have been hard not to hit Pelosi on the head as he took the Speaker's gavel. Um, House Republicans frequently complained that they were left out of the loop on legislation and top negotiations under the Pelosi reign. Um, But what they're saying is happening now is that Jeffries and McCarthy are frequently seen huddling on the floor, and McCarthy and other top Republicans have publicly thanked Jeffries for working with them on different issues, such as the China Select Committee and members briefing by the Director of Congressional Budget Office. Um, So this was a quote from one of the Republican representatives, certainly not going to call them best friends, but I do think that some uh, degree of communication is important and they return one another's call. Um, I met a, I was on the airplane flying back from New York on Thursday and I uh, sat next to a guy and he was very interesting, worked, been in business for a long time um, and uh, works for in the in the industry that makes um, paper products, uh, you know, coffee filters, things like that. And it was an interesting conversation with him, not just about his business, but about his political beliefs. A pretty conservative guy, I would say, just based on our conversation, but lamenting the idea of how people can't get along even though they don't agree, which I couldn't believe it was it was such a refreshing conversation in that way. Um, if you remember the old uh, the old uh, stories about Tip O'Neill and Ronald Reagan having a glass of bourbon at the White House and talking over things, that there was even a working relationship at one time when necessary between Bill Clinton and and the Speaker of the House, then Newt Gingrich, and uh, that you realize that you don't own the place. This was exactly, and I think this is where we go astray, is that we have to realize that if we want to talk about the Constitution, and all of us do, on both sides of the political aisle, wherever you are in the extremes in your political leanings, we all cite the Constitution. But at its core, at its base, the Constitution is there to make sure that there is no one person or one group in power. When it works the way it's supposed to work, the executive branch has a huge responsibility with veto powers and everything else, a huge responsibility and a lot of power, but they've got to work with Congress. Congress has to work with the White House. They all have to be in line with what the Supreme Court says. And if the parties don't understand that going in, the dysfunction continues. I would say my view is a little bit different than others, but I think that the way you would need to fix it is not the way you can win an office right now. If I were going to run for a political office, I would be running and encouraging people that are not registered to vote to vote. And I wouldn't just make that an offhanded comment. I would make that a huge part of my candidacy because everybody has political opinions. If you want the same politicians, you have to get the same people voting for the same people. That's what happens. The electorate has to change. 
And then the politici- politicians change. If you look at the and, and I'm not going to go down the road. This is not about bashing school boards. If you look about the look at the changes that have been made in school boards, just in school boards over since the pandemic, you look at what happened when school boards and they have to admit this. Many school boards did not handle criticism well. They didn't handle questions well. They were rude to parents. Domestic terrorist was a word thrown around by a National School Board Association. Um, you know, they, one par- group of parents were doxxed by a school board here in the Valley, by at least by the father of a school board president for the purposes of what they were doing. And so we understand that when this happened, parents got involved. And when people saw what was going on, they ran for the school board. And they're making changes. Things are changing. Whether they're changing rapidly or they're going to change forever, I don't know. But we did see an indication that when you show people a problem, they'll register to vote and they'll fix the problem. So the issue here for me is what happens with Speaker McCarthy? Will the Republican base applaud Speaker McCarthy working with the Democrats – or will they make it an issue where he's a rhino and he's not a real Republican and Nancy Pelosi treated Republicans horribly? Why do we always have to be the nice guys and it's time for us to step on their necks? Will the Democrats do it to Jeffries? Will the will the base of the Democrats come out and say that Jeffries has no business if you because any success for McCarthy and the Republicans is a loss for the Democrats? And if we want to take back over the House of Representatives, then we've got to make sure there's a state. And if you're going to work with them and make them look good, then we're never going to get our power back. And you know that's how the base responds in both parties. In the end, what's best for America? Are you able to do it? Do I think that there are people in Washington that are uber partisan? Yes, I do. But I also want you to know that I talk to a lot of people that are elected to office. And I can tell you that a lot of elected officials are saying there's a lot we'd like to do, but we know it is political suicide to do it. If we work across the aisle... If we say something publicly that's complimentary of an adversary from the other party, it's not the other party. It's our base that's going to crush us. They don't volunteer for our campaigns. They won't give us money. They run us into the ground in party politics. They primary us. They make our life a living hell if we dare talk to anybody on the other side of the aisle. And it happens in both political parties, which is another reason why you're seeing a third political party that is now uh, is now a part of of Arizona politics. People are fed up. I am, if you talk to me for any length of time, if we had a chance to have a one-on-one conversation, you would realize that, uh, especially on fiscal issues, I am a state's rights very conservative, fiscally conservative Republican. On some social issues, I'm a lot more libertarian where I have my personal beliefs, but I think the government doesn't have any business in there. And in most cases, I don't think it's the federal government's job to begin with that the vast majority of the power needs to be returned to the states in the form of taxation and in the form of regulation, that the states should regulate and tax themselves, that our biggest offices should be the governor's office. We should be a lot more concerned about who's governor than who's president. We should be a lot more concerned about who represents us in the state legislature than in the Congress. No offense to the members of Congress. You know, David Schweikert is my representative. Schweikert's my rep. I like David Schweikert. I've known him for years. But I shouldn't I should be less concerned about what he's doing in Washington, D.C. than I am with my representation in the state legislature. 
And so this, to me, is the biggest issue. I've got a, I've got a Republican representative in the Senate. I'm sorry, senator. And then I've, I'm, I'm a split in the House of Representatives. I've got a Republican and Democrat that represent my district. I'm more concerned about them because their decisions at the state legislature should and do affect me more. And so if we don't see this working together, that means if the base of the parties aren't willing to allow leadership to work together, we're just going to keep button heads. That's what's going to continue to happen. Um, so coming up here in just a moment, what are the implications of this bank collapse, the Silicon Valley Bank? We talked with Kristen Bentz, and she was excellent on the topic. We'll let you hear a little bit of what she said coming up here in just a couple of moments. And strong opinions. The Mike Broomhead Show, KTAR News, 92.3 FM, and the KTAR News app. Thanks again for being here. I want you to hear a little bit of my conversation, and I always encourage you to go back and listen to the interviews, especially when we have an expert on about some things that we're talking about during the day and important issues. And I would say the Silicon Valley Bank story is probably the biggest story of the day because it's been affecting how people consider finances. People are concerned about bank collapses. People are concerned about having their money there. The president had to come out and make statements about this. They've been describing what's going on here. The president of the United States saying, hey, listen, your deposits are safe. And um, so I want you to hear this. This is Kristen Bentz is got a company. It's called KB Advisory Group. She has made a living for most of her career. And as long as I've known her as an advisor, and she advises on where the stock market is going, especially in the retail world. She's made a great living at it. She's a very well-respected voice in this industry. And here is her opinion of the breakdown of what this all means. 20 regional bank in the country, right? So it's not just some tiny little bank. What they were doing is um, lending money to startups. Some of those startups were very lucrative and they put all their money back in the bank. And some of those startups were not so lucrative. So what do banks do when you give them money? They invest it to make more money. And they invested in some kind of risky investments, basically. And when the Fed raised all these interest rates, they kind of got caught on the wrong side of that trade. And so when you see these banks making risky, risky investments, and this is what a lot of people now are looking at, I think. People are looking at the world and are saying, so what is it that my bank is doing? Do I have to worry about the bank that I'm in, you know, that I've got my money in? If you invest money, if you, you know, when you give money to a bank, they're using your money. And that's part of the concerns for the bank is what if you go and want your money out? They've got to give you your money. Um, but are you concerned about where, how strong, how solvent, how secure, how reasonable are the investments in the bank where you bank? Now, for people that have a checking account and are living paycheck to paycheck, I don't know how much it affects you. Um, but for somebody that's got some means or somebody, if you're running a business and all of your cash that you use, your cash flow for your business runs through a bank, um, this is a big concern. And what about this bank? What made this bank different? It's a digital bank run, right? So back in the 90s, you had to physically, you know, pull out your money. Now, everything just happens overnight on your phone. So all these investors were worried and clients of the bank that they couldn't make their payroll, they couldn't pay their people, that, you know, this money wouldn't be around on Friday. So everyone started pulling that money out, and then the federal government seized that bank. So this is, uh, this is where the issue is. President Biden had to make a statement, and I, I, I kind of framed the question that way. Wasn't it important for the president to come out? 
out and tell the American people that your money is safe, that your money is there. You're going to be able to get to your money. There isn't an issue. Why did he have to make that statement? If you have an investment in that bank of under $250,000, if a bank run or something horrible like this occurs, you will get paid. You will be made whole. But what about those folks that had more than that amount of money? So that's why you see Joe Biden popping up at 9 a.m. When have you ever seen him pop up at 9 a.m. so quickly? So this has become a very political thing. So they want to get out there, you know, very swiftly and severely and say, the government, we got you. We're going to back you up. So after 2008, we know that there were new banking regulations. And are they adhering to those regulations? What is what needs to happen when these are people that are taking money from the American public and investing that money? Um, first of all, who's paying for this failure? The FDIC, that's the, the Department of the Federal Government that insures your deposits. And so did they know that these, you know, I would say questionable investments were happening? Well, everyone's going to start taking a look at where they're banking, right? And how healthy is your bank? And this begs the question, my over, you know, did the FDIC know that this 20th largest bank was making risky investments? I'm going to say they probably did. <laughs> so yeah. everyone's going to start, you know, raising a few eyebrows about where they're putting their money. And then that also hurts regional banks. So, you know, they talk about these DEI investments, the diversity, equity, inclusion, and the White House is promoting all of this. And there are a lot of people that are saying investments should be based on veracity. They should be based on uh, how solvent they are, how solid those investments are, and not based on a political ideology and political correctness. Is that a part of this? There's a couple of stories that are saying they were heavily involved in this. I don't know the answer to that. I do know this, that your political ideology is one thing and you're entitled to it. And if you're telling your Customers, this is the direction we're going. And I be- listen, I believe in capitalism. I believe in the freedom of speech. And I believe in your right to live your life the way you want. If there is a bank that comes out and says, hey, listen, we are going to invest our money in this world because we believe it makes this world a better place. So we are going to take some risks. We're going to do some things that haven't been done before. And you put your money there and invest in that bank. As the president said earlier, investors that invested their money in banks are, you know, you lose money sometimes. But the average consumer should not be losing things because banks ideological and are based, uh, basing investments on ideology versus investment quality. Um, and I'm not saying a negative thing about anyone. I just if you're going to if I want you if I'm coming to you for advice on my opinions in society on social issues, then I'm coming to you for that. If I'm coming to you for financial advice, I want you to give me answers based on finances. And I, I don't know that that's the case here. I just saw a couple of stories that said it. There's going to be more here on the show later on the, as the day goes on because I think this is the biggest news stories of the day. Um, this interview with Kristen Bentz, there's more to hear. But also um, – You'll be able to hear the whole interview during on the podcast a little bit later on in the show. I want to go back to a topic from earlier, which is about police officers and prosecutors. Lack of police officers and lack of ability or willingness to prosecute has had crime going up in major cities, and law enforcement is pushing back. We'll talk about that coming up in the next moment. Stick around.
strong values and strong opinions. The Mike Broomhead Show, KTAR News, 92.3 FM, and the KTAR News app. You know, uh, crime and punishment, policing has always been a big topic on the show. I think it's a fairly common sense approach to most things. Um, you're not going to get a lot of deep thought on this show when it comes to things, but I'm loaded with common sense. Here's a headline. A St. Louis homicide detective blows the whistle on a DA concerted effort to break down the system. The, the, the thing that bothers me most about this is this is a homicide detective said that a district attorney, Kimberly Gardner, placed him on an infamous exclusion list, which bars officers from being involved in crucial portions of criminal justice proceedings. Roger Murphy retired in 2021, approximately two years after he said he was being put on an exclusion list, which made him feel like a sitting duck. Um, he said, I just basically sat there. I couldn't really do anything. So I said to myself, I'm sitting here collecting dust and just collecting a paycheck and not doing anything. So what good am I here for the citizens? Well, I'm going to retire and turn in my papers. So um, the problem with this now is are people starting to, and the question is out there, are people in law enforcement discouraging other people from going into law enforcement? Because it's become too political. Um, a, a couple of other headlines before I get to a local story in this in this uh, vein. Shoplifting climbs as in-store shopping returns. Uh, Memphis Police Academy is cutting corners while scrambling to hire, according to some officers. A Florida rep has introduced a bill allowing congressional employees to store firearms in the Capitol Hill offices. Uh, that's going to be such a funny argument because you have a group of people talking about January 6th, which I've never mocked, but they are calling January 6th an insurrection and an attempt to overthrow our government. And then they, the very same people will be the ones that will block an attempt by congressional office members or office holders, whether it's con- members of Congress or their staff, from storing weapons that would fend off those would-be um, overthrowers. I just think that's a little bit uh, uh, ironic. There's a story locally. His name is Michael Collins. He's the president of the Chandler Law Enforcement Association, where Clee is offering to settle a claim. Uh, since it's a legal claim and a personnel matter, we won't be making any comments at this time. But the legal claim is is this, basically, from what you read in the story. Um, Michael Collins says in his capacity as the head of the uh, Chandler Law Enforcement Association, that's the union that represents the rank-and-file officers in the city of Chandler with the, when they go for negotiations, pay raises, equipment, things of that nature. They, they are the representatives. Um, and in his capacity as the union president, he began to speak out about the dangers of low staffing in the city of Chandler. He spoke to media outlets. He spoke to other people in saying, you know, we are getting dangerously low on officers. It's becoming an officer safety issue. It's definitely a public safety issue. And it's time the public was aware of this. Well, he is saying that because he did that, the members of the city, the city management, have taken him out of a specialty detail and put him back in patrol. And he believes that it has nothing to do with the work he's done as an officer. It has everything to do with a retribution or retaliation because he spoke out publicly about this shortage. Um, now, I don't know which is true, to be honest with you. I, I don't know. I have not talked to the city. Um, I've had conversations with Michael Collins before, but I've not had any conversations about this issue whatsoever. Um, no comment from him on what this case is about. Um, but I will say this, that um, – 
when you start seeing things like this with shortages and staffing shortages, cities have to know that the citizenry gets upset when they feel as if there's not enough officers on the street. Um, the plea, the Phoenix Law Enforcement Association spoke up loudly over the years, over two different presidents, three different presidents in that organization, now a fourth president in that organization as long as I've known them, going back to five of the that I've known, um, have been speaking out publicly about how dangerously short-staffed they are and the dangers to the public and the long-term effects to policing. Phoenix Fire has been speaking out. When we talk about public safety, I, to my um, detriment, it's my fault. I have left Phoenix Fire and other fire departments across the valley out of this equipment shortage, faulty equipment, low staffing conversation. Do we have enough firehouses in Phoenix? Now, I live in Phoenix. This is not big, a big shift from this, but just another level of this. Do we have enough fire stations, firehouses in Phoenix? Do you know that response times have grown to about 10 minutes? I want you to think about a fire in your kitchen. I want you to think, God forbid, a medical issue for somebody in your family. 10 minutes? 10 minutes to get to you on average. Can you imagine? And we can and we should be doing better. We have a lot of money in our budgets in the city of Phoenix and in other cities across this valley. There's a, but what is the priority? Because what if you say yes to public safety, if you say yes, we are going to pay officers what's necessary. We're going to equip them with top-line equipment. We are going to make sure that they are the best trained that we can possibly get. We are going to support law enforcement and firefighters. We are going to make sure they have everything they need, that when they walk into or run into a dangerous situation. We have given them the best opportunity to be successful. And if we are going to do that, there will have to be other areas of the city budget which suffer, which don't get money from the city. Or the city has to raise taxes, which they don't want to do because that is also political suicide. But every single politician I know, that should, that's not true. I'm sorry. I was going to say every politician I know says public safety first. That's not true. Carlos Garcia in the city of Phoenix has never said public safety first. Um, but for the the vast majority of people either getting elected to office or trying to get elected to office say public safety first. The vast majority of them seek out the endorsement of fire and police. They want it on their signs. They want you to know because you don't know who half these candidates are, but you see on their campaign signs, police and fire endorsed. You think, OK. Fair enough. But when they get in office, are we funding, are we fully funding these organizations? And now with what's happening in law enforcement, if the sentiment from police officers is management is not backing us up, management, city management is not there for us like they should be. How many older officers, more seasoned officers are going to recommend this job to younger people? I often wonder this, and I've never had this conversation with my brother and with his wife, both of which are deputies. My brother's a captain. His wife is still a, a road deputy. Um, his wife um, took a break in their career so she could raise the children, but she still is a deputy. She still works. I wonder if one of my nieces or my nephew wanted to go into law enforcement, I wonder if they would recommend that as a profession. I wonder what they would say. And, you know, it, it's sad because I know they're both very proud of their careers and proud of the job that they do. 
In a moment, a study going back to education, a study shows that Arizona stands to gain billions of dollars if we have a better educated society. Does that mean college educated? Does that mean a good, solid high school education so they could go on to other schools? What exactly does that mean? We're going to get to that coming up here in just a moment. Values and strong opinions. The Mike Broomhead Show, KTAR News, 92.3 FM, and the KTAR News app. So a recent study, which you can see more of on KTAR.com, Griselda Zatino wrote a great piece, and she's been doing an ongoing series about education in Arizona. Um, Currently, about 46% of graduates enroll in post-secondary education right after high school. The report estimates the increasing that rate by 20% would generate more than $5 billion per high school cohort in social gains attributable to factors like higher lifetime earnings and better health and increased workforce productivity. And there is an issue because a headline that counters this in another news story talks about college enrollment goes down because teens are opting for trade schools and other careers. Um, Now, again, I want to be very, very clear. This is about education as a whole. I will never denigrate a college education. I I have uh, extolled the the great accomplishments of Arizona State University. I don't know a lot of people at at U of A um, or NAU, uh, but what they've done at ASU and their their ability to transition from the reputation it had 25 years ago. I moved here 28 years ago. Go back to when I moved here. It was seen as one of the top party schools in the country. They've done a lot about Frat Row. They've become now a a huge um, research, and their engineering program is now as big as the Cronkite School and the W.P. WP Carey School. They are an educational institution that many people in the country see some of their programs as tops in the country. So this is not about a negative on, on a college education, but we also understand, and I will tell you from personal experience, there is a lot of money to be made and great jobs security in trades where I have zero student loan debt. Zero. Because I learned most of what I knew on the job as an electrical apprentice. My bosses paid for my schooling when I went to my journeyman electrician classes and I took the test and became a journeyman electrician. I'm the one who paid for my schooling to go to a master electrician exam class, but that was different. It wasn't that expensive. I've been to transient voltage surge suppression, lighting design courses. I've been through a lot of courses that either my bosses paid for or were fairly inexpensive that gave me huge um, insight into other parts of the industry that I grew up in. And I will tell you that I made a nice living as an electrician. I moved to Arizona without knowing a soul in the industry. No one in the industry had three job offers the day I got here. So I got here on a Monday. I went and applied for jobs on a Tuesday, and I went to work on a Wednesday. And I've never been unemployed, ever. The only time I've ever spent unemployed was my choice of not being employed. The three days it took me to drive to Arizona from Florida. Now, I'm telling you that because there are options for young people. And as young people are listening to even a generation older than them. So you're talking about when 18-year-olds, let's say 16-year-olds now are listening to 26-year-olds. And 26-year-olds are saying, how am I ever going to pay down my student loan debt? The jobs that I'm being offered based on my my uh, degree and what field I'm in are going to be nowhere near what's necessary to pay off my student loans. I'm in big trouble. And they're thinking, I don't want that. Why would I do that to myself? 
if they can find a course of action, if they can find a direction, whether it's through the, the CTEDs, the career technical education districts here in Arizona, as we call them, which are trade schools. Or as adults, they're going to trade schools and they are learning a different career where they're finding themselves in a program that lasts a year or maybe two years at the most. And the cost is so much lower than a college education. And they're making, you know, electricians, journeyman electricians right now, I think are making somewhere in the neighborhood of $70,000 a year plus benefits. Um, that And that doesn't include overtime. That is a huge amount of money for someone that doesn't have a college degree, and those jobs are available. There's going to be a couple of hundred thousand jobs that are needed in the trades in the next two years here in Arizona. So I am not denigrating a college education, but what degree are you chasing? And that's the advice that kids have to listen to. If you're a wealthy – if you come from a wealthy family and your parents are going, God bless you if you are, I think that's terrific. If you want to pursue a degree in philosophy or a degree that's not going to pay you anything when you get out of college and your parents are going to pay for your college, I think that's amazing. If you want to be an art critic, if you want to, and it's a job that doesn't pay that much, that's on you. But for a working class family or someone that comes from a family where they have to pay their way through college or pay back loans, you are going to have to consider the cost of that education versus the amount of money you're going to make. And you are seeing more and more of it. And education has to change. And I believe it will out of necessity. I think, you know, look at look at the how many more people are going to school online and saving money with an online education, which has turned into a great way to get an education. It's not a rubber stamp. It's not a less than it's not a degree with an asterisk. This is a, a real degree that people are pursuing. And more and more schools are offering those kinds of online degrees so that it allows people the flexibility to work where they need to work, save a little bit of money, not spend as much money as you would by staying on campus and going to a class. And this is something that I think is important for us to talk about. I think it's immensely important because they're right. A better educated society gives us better jobs and better paying jobs and higher wages, and it's better for the state of Arizona. That education isn't just locked into college. That's my opinion on this. This Helio study says it's college education and a bachelor's degree. I think that's fantastic. Nurses and people that are going to fit those jobs that are very well paying and in high demand. And I agree with you, but I think it's a two-tiered approach, a two-pronged approach. And the other one has to be these other certificates, whether it's culinary arts or it's classically in the trades or coding or these other areas where you can go and get a certificate, not necessarily a degree, and have a great career, make good money, and feed your family for a lifetime. That's what we should be working toward. What we're going to do just after 11 o'clock is uh, ask the question, is the president considering separating families at the border like the Trump administration did. We're going to talk immigration. It's spring break. We're going to talk about safety in Mexico for spring breakers. All that's coming up next.